Your hands were made for greatness. Mighty hands for painting, paneling, and clicking the submit order button on homedepot.com to get that duvet. And these Egyptian cotton towels delivered right to your door. Do more with decor at the Home Depot. Save up to 30% on select bedding and bath. Now at homedepot.com. More saving, more kinds of doing. Ballot on select items online only. Free delivery on select items $45 or more. Enter promo code BEDBATH15 at purchase for an extra 15% off. Visit homedepot.com for more information. Welcome, everyone, to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. Today, we're going to be talking about a practical guide when adopting a child over the age of two. It is based on a book I really like. I think you're going to enjoy this show as much as I have. This show is brought to you by Creating a Family. We are the national adoption and infertility education and support nonprofit, and I'm Dawn Davenport, your host and the executive director. This show is underwritten by Jockey Bean Family Foundation. Their mission is to strengthen adoptive families through post-adoption services. Their founder is Deborah Waller. She is the also the chairman and CEO of Jockey International. And she has a saying I really like, one failed adoption is one too many. Uh, you can support their, their mission by buying a bear or a blanket at their website, jockeybeingfamily.com. As we tell you each week, and we mean it, this show would not exist without the support of our partners. And these are agencies that believe <clears throat> excuse me, in our mission of providing unbiased education to both pre-adoptive parents as well as continuing the support post-adoption. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include Children's House International. They are a nonprofit Hague-accredited international adoption agency with programs in 13 countries. They provide full services, including home studies in the states of Florida, Louisiana, Massachusetts, Texas, Utah, and Washington State. But they also place children with any U.S.-approved family worldwide. And Adoptions from the Heart. They have helped build over 6,000, get that, 6,000 families since 1985 through domestic infant adoption. They work with people all across the U.S., and they are fully licensed in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, Delaware, Virginia, and Connecticut. And we hope that you will support those who support us. Today we're going to be talking about a book that are talking with the authors of a book that I really like. The name of the book is Adopting Older Children, A Practical Guide to Adopting and Parenting Children Over the Age of Four. Um, the authors are Stephanie Bosco-Ruggio, Gloria Russo-Wassel, and Dr. Victor Groza. Um, they, I, I, I so enjoyed this book. Uh, the, I think one of the things I really enjoyed about it is, is just one word in the title, and that's the word practical. Uh, I read a lot of adoption books, and I always appreciate it when I find one that is not real pie in the sky and it brings it down to what I can actually do, with giving me enough information as to why I need to do it. And this book struck the right chord for me. Uh, this is based on an interview we did two years ago. It is such a good show and such a good book that we wanted to bring it to you again. Enjoy. Welcome, Victor and Stephanie, to Creating a Family. Thanks for having us. Thank you. 
I love this book. I uh, I liked it. Very, it's just it is a terrific resource. I'm going to give the title again for our audience: "Adopting Older Children: A Practical Guide to Adopting and Parenting Children Over the Age of Four. It's published by New Horizon Press. Um, it is a great resource. Uh, and and what I, one of the things I liked, and I, I wrote a review for our site, and this is what I said uh, in the review: you did not gloss over potential issues that might come up, but you also didn't exaggerate them. I, I read the book, and so often I end up feeling discouraged when reading books such as this, and I came away reading this book feeling encouraged. So I I, I thank you for this. Uh, thank you for providing a resource, uh, a much-needed resource uh, for the uh, adoptive parent community. Uh, I want to start by talking about just some common reasons that you hear from families as to why they might choose to adopt an older child. Stephanie, you've been doing this for a while. What do you hear as reasons why people might want to adopt an older child? Sure. Um, And I just want to say, Dawn, I'm so glad that you came away from the book feeling that way because that's exactly that was exactly our aim um, to talk about potential challenges but also not to discourage people from considering older child adoption. Now, why would um, some people consider older child adoption rather than infant adoption? Um, One of the reasons is that infant adoption, domestic adoption, and inter-country adoption is very, very expensive. Um, another reason is the eligibility to adopt an infant. Um, if you're beyond a certain age, many private agencies do not allow you to adopt an infant. So say if you're over the age of 45 or 50 for some agencies, you are precluded from um, going through the infant adoption process. Um, another reason is that um, single people may be interested in adoption, but again, they are not necessarily going to be selected by birth parents um, to adopt the birth parent's infant because that birth parent wants a couple. Um, So it's more difficult for a single person to adopt an infant. For all of these reasons, people may consider older child adoption, but also just for the fact that people have great hearts and they realize that there are so many children in foster care and even abroad um, who are a little bit older. And when we say we we do call for an older, older, um, you know, because... Uh, Infant adoption typically is newborns um, or maybe a little bit old, most of the time newborns. But you're getting more into the older adoption. Um, People may think only teenagers, but actually we're thinking, you know, grade school, middle school, high school age. Um, Some people are just, they they have a calling to adopt domestically or from abroad um, because they, they know how many children need families. Yeah, I, I think that it's important to note exactly, just to reiterate what you said, the greatest need in the United States for families is uh, in foster care, for foster care adoption, is for children really over the age of six. Um, and quite frankly, in, in, in most international adoptions now, it's quite hard to get a child under the age of two. You can get a toddler um, from many countries, but uh, if you have an affinity for a country or for whatever reason want to ad- adopt internationally, 
um, your child is likely, it would not be at all surprising to have a child four and, and, and over. That's just kind of the nature now of the beast. I want to, I want to move to talking uh, about the transition, transition period uh, when you're adopting an, uh, an older child. And it seems like it's vastly different depending on whether you're adopting a child from foster care or if you're adopting internationally. And, and if you're adopting from foster care, whether you are the child's current foster family, in other words, whether the child's already living with you. So let's kind of talk. What I, I want to do is give some tips for families because some of the audience will be, some of our audience will be considering adopting and have not yet adopted, and others will be uh, adopted, already adopting parents. Um, so for those who are considering it or are brand new um, and uh, or have, are just in the process, let's get some tips for that transi- transition period when you've got an older child who, and, and let's start by saying either foster care or internationally where the child has not been living in your home. Well, actually, let's break it up because usually, if you're adopting an older child through foster care, you're going to have some tra- you're going to be given transition time. So let's talk about that first. Um, and and, and uh, Victor, I'd like for you to talk to us about that. But we're going to talk primarily at the beginning about foster care, where the child is transitioning into your home but is not currently living in your home. Thoughts on how parents can help the child um, make that transition and how they can help their other children and their family make that transition. Yeah, great question. So one of the things that we recommend is that when you start the visitation, that it be in the child space, that you go to where the child's currently residing or the children, and that you really get to know their routines, you see kind of where they live, what's familiar to them, the kinds of things that they like to play with, the kinds of foods that they like to eat, and and that you really begin to understand what the daily routine of that child is in the family that they're currently living or the situation that they're living in, and that you try to build some of those same things back into the family that you're in. So you start that transition by going to where the child is, and then you can go to like a a kind of a mutual space that's not in your family, but maybe like in a park or maybe at a fast food restaurant or someplace. But that visitation becomes really important so the child becomes familiar with the new situation. So I think that's one of the key things is to know the child's routine. And that's a great idea. So you start in their space, then you gradually move to a neutral space, park, fast food restaurant with a play area, whatever, um, and then move to your home. Would that be the general transition? That's usually the transition, and it's the best plan uh, if you can make it. And that you then increase visitation. So maybe the first visit is just a quick in and out, and the second visit is a couple hours, and then the third visit is longer period of time, and so you kind of extend it because you don't want this transition to be another trauma to the child. You want it to be thoughtful, planful from the child's perspective, not from the adults. What happens often is adults get so excited about this placement happening that they want to accelerate it. Uh, and it may be good for them, but it may not be in the best interest of the child. So you have to be very thoughtful about that process and not let your your excitement and your feelings overwhelm good planning. Stephanie, anything to add to tips for when transitioning in foster care where the child is not living in your home? I think Victor hit on the major points. Um, I think that you can talk to um, 
the the foster parents to get a sense of how the child has been doing okay, in their okay, home. I, mm-hmm. yeah, I think exactly. the other thing I would add is that try to get as much information as possible. One of the things that I really appreciate it, Stephanie's perspective is we want to make it realistic but not fatalistic when you're getting information. And so one of the things you have to realize is some information that you want may not be available. It may not be known. Uh, but what information is available you should try to get because that helps you prepare at least cognitively thinking about what has been this child's experience, what kind of issues may they might I encounter, and so get the written material and keep a copy for yourself so so that you at least have what is known at the time that your placement about the child's history. Yeah, and what we encourage people is to get the full copy of the record, not the summary. Yes. Um, Absolutely. Get the copy. Spend some time. Pay the. You know, they often some. Um, sometimes they ask that you pay for the copy cost. It's worth it. Um, or just go there, sit down, and spend time reading the entire file. Um, so that's another another great suggestion. Um, now, in international adoption, the, often the ideal scenario you've just talked about is is not a, a possibility. So let's talk about an international adoption. What can we do that could mimic this, or, or is that even possible in most countries? And, and Victor, I'm going to turn to you for this one. Yeah. So one of the things I, I encourage families to not do is don't hire an escort. Go to the country where the child is located. Even if both parents, if your two-parent family can't go, one parent should go, because you want to, as much as possible, replicate that transition process. If you hire somebody to just bring the child over, you never know the really their context of where they've been. And again, I, I would follow as much as possible. It, you know, it's going to be different in every country, but go to where the child's currently residing. Spend some time in that location. Figure out what foods they eat, what music they hear, what are the sights and sounds, and and really don't just take the child if if you can avoid it. Now sometimes you can't. I mean this this is I'm giving you like the Cadillac version of what you can do, but yeah. you may end up with a little, you know, bicycle and not a car at all. Uh so but I think it is important to to understand their context as you you transition them to your family. Yeah, you can try to 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 the extent possible replicate, but you also you do have to be flexible because the reality is the country and the the people on the ground there are going to be in charge and 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 but you can speak up and you can do your best to try to that's it all right now we've got the child transitioned the child has now arrived in our home. How can we set realistic expectations and routines with these newly adopted children. And I guess maybe that begs the question of is it important and if so why is it important to set up routines um for the uh, for a a newly adopted child. Well, oh, uh, I should be directing that Stephanie. I apologize. <laughs> Stephanie, I meant, I'll just, I was, I'll just say mind, a little bit to you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just say a little bit, and I'm, I'm sure Victor can add more. But um, our third co-author, Gloria, always talks about the importance of absolutely setting routines. Um, the child has been through so much, um, possibly moving from you know foster home to foster home. 
um, and now being adopted, that routine helps provide stability in their in their life and um, helps them have some expectations as to what family life is like in their new home. Um, it's probably not the best idea to invite grandma and grandpa and Uncle Bill and Aunt Sally and, you know, the ten cousins over, like, the first week when the child <laughs> comes into your home. That can be completely overwhelming. Um, people talk about a honeymoon period where children are at their best behavior when they first come into the home. They perhaps don't want um, to be seen as um, a troublemaker that is going to be sent away again, have to go to another home or the adoption will be canceled or something, you know, whatever their thought process is. Um, and then very often things, as they become more comfortable, actually some of the behavioral issues come into play. Um, but that routine goes far in helping smooth things out in the beginning. And um, I've heard people suggest that, it's it's important to prepare the siblings, their new siblings, um, if you have children by birth already in the home or other adopted children, prepare them for the child coming home and actually maybe have them correspond with the child before they come home to um, show how welcome they will be and, and how their new siblings are looking forward to their arrival and, and develop that relationship. So anything that can be done to make those first few months smoother and easier for the child um, are very important. You know what we sometimes Victor, hear, I, Victor. Yeah, what we sometimes hear from people is that you know I'm just not a routine-oriented person. I I'm mm. just the spontaneous type. This you know I'm just you know I find routines to be a straitjacket. What would you tell the parents who and I and I get that. Um, what would you tell to the parent adoptive parents who who are the more spontaneous type who feel like they would be chafing at at the restrictions of routines, Victor? Well, I would say uh, welcome to parenthood. Uh, parenthood <laughs> and ch child and raising children uh, it can be chaotic, but it has to be chaotic within a structure. Uh, and they may chafe at it, but this is not about them. This is about what children do better at. And children do better with predictability uh, and transparency. And so I, I'm a big proponent of putting up what are the rules, what's the routine, uh, using a, 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 a token economy where, you know, you give them stars for doing what you want them to do in the morning. And it could be very mundane things like get out of bed on time, brush your teeth, you know, Anything that a parent expects should be very explicit and clear and written in a way that children can see it and children begin to understand what's the routine in the family. Um, when you say the routine, when you say make it explicit, give us some some. Uh, if you've got a five-year-old who is is preliterate, um, give us or, or a child adopted from abroad who doesn't speak our language. How can you make your Routines and expectations. Uh, Great question. Uh, yeah. Pictures. You know, kids, you don't need to use language. You can just use a picture of somebody getting out of bed, <clears throat> of somebody brushing their teeth, of somebody combing their hair, uh, somebody getting into the shower. So I, I think even pre-literate ch 
children respond to pictures and know that this is the way it's going to be every day, that this is the house I'm in, these are are the the way I'm supposed to behave in this house. Now, that can be negotiated later, but I think at the beginning, it wants to be pretty consistent and clear because you want to have a successful transition as children kind of know what you expect. Many parents will take off initially, but then they have to go to work. And so that's an anxiety-producing time for children. Uh, What am I going to do when you go to work? Who's going to take care of me? Where do I go? And so, you know, taking kids to the people who are going to care for them if you're hiring somebody to care for them. If they're going to a school and it's a new school, before they actually get there, taking them to the school. So so I think there's lots of things that you can do that are, are not verbal, but you have to really prepare for adopting older children. And older children need structure and routine. And I always believe that even the parents who... Um, are the, the spontaneous ones who, who are convinced that they would really struggle with setting up a routine. Um, adopting an older child is a stressful uh, situation for them as well, and I, I find that they also thrive with a routine. And it doesn't have yes. to be forever. You can uh, revert some to a little more loosey-goosey once you've, uh, once you've set it up. Absolutely. We have a question from Rhonda. She says, we are in the process of adopting a nine-year-old. He has been in foster care twice, and his parental rights will be terminated soon. He is not living with us now. He has lived with his bio mom, his grandmother, and aunt, a friend of the family for most of his life. It doesn't sound like he's ever had a consistent parent-slash-mother figure and has never had a father figure. He has been in his current foster placement for six months, and they report that he is more like a visitor, but his behavior is fine. He knows that it is not permanent. I would love some advice on what to expect and how to teach him what it means to have a parent. I'd like to hear both of your thoughts on this question for Rhonda, but let's start with you, uh, Stephanie. Um, A child who has never had parents and has not lived in a family, a structured family environment, how do we help the child understand his role and your role? Hmm. That's a great question, and... um you know, it will be a challenge. Older child adoption has many challenges inherent to it, and that is because um, children do come from chaotic backgrounds where they're going, where their biological family has had issues, and maybe it's a single-parent family or there's substance abuse issues, um, trauma, abuse, neglect, um, I don't know the specifics of this particular situation, but um, in terms of transitioning them into a more stable family situation, again, I think routines and talking to other parents who have been through this. Find out maybe what book at, at his grade level um, would be useful in teaching child about family life, about different types of families. Um, Also, the correspondence maybe from if they have um, existing children in the home, develop a relationship before the child comes into the home so that he feels that he has a connection already um, and try to have as many visits as possible before he comes to live in the home permanently. 
Okay, excellent. Victor, any thoughts on how do we teach children what it means, what family life is, and what it means to have a parent? Well, nine-year-olds can be pretty articulate, and particularly nine-year-olds who've been through the system and through these various families, in some ways they end up being older beyond their years. And so the first thing I would do is, is talk to the child and and really get their perspective of what does it mean for them to be in a family where it's going to be two parents and it's going to be predictable and you're not going to be a visitor uh, this is mm-hmm. going to, we want to make a commitment to you and say, what do they expect and how's it going to be different for them? I mm-hmm. mean, I would really, you know, not assume that the child's not aware. The child is nine years old is very aware about what's going on. And, you know, it's about opening up a conversation uh, mm-hmm. at a level that they understand and being open to listening to what they think about what a family is and how your family may be different. I really love family life books that before children move in that that they get pictures and the family prepares that who we are as a family and and that you kind of go through the the family book with them that says okay this is where your bedroom's going to be and here's where your school is and I think those kind of really concrete things help children build a connection uh as they make the transition into into the new family one of the things that we often hear, not often, but we on occasion hear from families who have adopted older children, either from foster care or internationally, is a lack of understanding for their, from their family and their friends on, on why they would want to adopt an older child or a lot of unsolicited advice on how you mm-hmm. need to or why you shouldn't do it. Um, so one of the questions that comes up is, how can we, what are some tips for preparing our family and our friends for um, for our decision to, to do this and to prepare them for also for some of the realities without, again, without scaring them, but also giving them a, a heads up? Um, let's start with you, Victor, on that one. Well, one of the things, you know, you'll be out in public and people will look at you and if they see that obviously there's a difference, so they may actually bring up the conversation it's really good to be prepared to have the list of four or five things that, that you would say in response to people's questions like how much did they cost or um, why would you adopt an older child? And and so I think every family is going to have to answer this differently, but it, it could be as simple as saying my heart was open to this child who needed a family. It could be as simple as that. You can also use it as an opportunity just to educate people that there are thousands of children waiting for a family, and this is the child that touched our hearts and that we opened our lives to because this child needed us, Uh, and we needed them. It's a mutual kind of relationship. So I I think families need to rehearse in their head and even write down the, the top five questions that you think people may ask and how you're going to respond to it so that you do it in a very on emotional but factual way, both educates people but also kind of protects you and your child who who may get questioned inappropriately sometimes from from people who just don't have, I think, good social skills. Um, (laughs) What about beforehand when your um, family is is negative? Uh, One would hope that once (laughs) the the child is there and and present during this conversation that that would not happen. But uh, beforehand, um, getting negative responses. Any thoughts on that, Stephanie? 
Yeah, we interviewed um, about 15, 20 families for the book, and I did hear stories, unfortunate stories, of people who received judgment from close families and friends about their decision to adopt, about their decision to adopt a child of a different race. I can imagine there might be judgment in some families um, if you decide to adopt a child that is gay or lesbian. Um, This is unfortunate, but people have to sort of brace themselves for possibly receiving such uh, judgmental um, attitudes or even ignorant attitudes from people who are very close to them. In some situations, you may even want to Um, put that friendship on hold or that family relationship on hold, or maybe you find that you don't want to have that relationship anymore because the person is just not supportive of your decision. And once you decide and once that child is in your home um, and is your child, that child comes first. And um, you do not want family or friends um, having attitudes that will further jeopardize the child's um, feeling of security. They've they've gone through so much already. I would think most um, friends and family who are questioning your decision will come around once they learn more about older child adoption and your decision and, and get to know the child, and they'll probably adore him or her after, you know, a short time, but sometimes um, you're going to have people with uh, surprising attitudes and you have to decide if that's a relationship you still want in your life. And you, before you adopt, you want to have make sure that you have supportive relationships and have people around you, or not necessarily close friends, but a, a support group of people who have adopted older children. I, I, and I would also interject that I think a lot of it has to do and how you present it. If you present it as you're uncertain, um, then I think you're going to get advice uh, and and you're going to hear negativity. If, however, you are very comfortable with your decision, uh, present it as a fait accompli. We are doing this, and uh, we are excited about this. We're looking forward to it. We are prepared uh, that it could be rocky at times, but uh, we have enough love and uh, we have enough resources and blah, 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 and then to just say thank you for your input and move on. Say thank you for your input that we are doing this, and, and uh, I hope you come on board. I think a lot, if, if, if we feel, if they, th- if they see an opening, they're doing it because they love us most of the time, and so knowing that yes. they're coming from a place of love, um, but also ignorance. Um, right. It doesn't hurt. <laughs> you are listening to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and infertility. We are so glad to have you with us on this show talking about older child adoption. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our weekly e-newsletter. We have a weekly newsletter for adoption, and we would love to have you sign up for it. That's where you would be notified of the latest developments in this field, uh, the um, expert Q&As we've added, uh, adoption in the news articles we add every week, as well as the upcoming week's uh, adoption blog and show topic as well. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter on the top right side of any page of our website, creatingafamily.org. Here is a question we got from, uh, well, actually, uh, I'm not going to use her name. She asked not to. She said, we adopted a six-year-old, our six-year-old daughter last year. I could use some help in navigating contact with previous foster family and birth family. Is it in my child's best interest? 
And we have another question that's very long, but it was uh, along a similar line in asking if the child's behavior goes downhill after each visit. Um, What is that an indication of, and and is openness always in the child's best interest? And just kind of uh, general questions about what to do when it, it appears that the child is not handling the contact well. So let's talk just briefly here about openness in general. Um, and and it, with international adoption uh, of older children, it's usually not an option. It is not always an option in adopting from foster care, but it can be. Um, and uh, sometimes it's with previous foster families. Sometimes it is with grandparents or with siblings. And sometimes it's with birth parents themselves. Victor, thoughts on this about... Um, navigating whether or not to have contact and, and how to know when it's in your child's best interest. Yeah. So let me just talk about when kids behave badly after a visit. I think that, that one of the things you have to keep in mind is that the language of children is their behavior. And they're behaving badly because it's really demonstrating the loss of a significant attachment. And so it doesn't surprise me that if children go visit somebody that they're really connected to and they come back and behave badly, it's really letting you know that that's a significant relationship and they're having trouble navigating how to stay connected and how to to be back in your family. There are situations where it's not in the child's best interest to have an openness. For example, the child can't be safe or if either emotionally or physically, then that's not a place to have an open relationship. But by and large, if a child has a significant attachment to a relative, a sibling, another foster family, it is usually in their best interest to maintain that attachment on some level because children have already experienced so much loss, and we don't want to compound the losses that they've already had by cutting off other significant attachments people but you have to learn help them learn how to manage that and and begin to adapt help them to develop strategies about talking about how they're feeling rather than just acting out how they're feeling um by and large i'm i'm a real proponent of more openness and adoption and in fact in most of the work that i've done in the research over time you see adoptive parents wanting even more openness uh, because they really recognize how important it is both to the child and the family to to maintain those significant connections. Something you said there about um, maintain uh, openness on some level, and I think that that may be something that parents would need to consider if the child is struggling with not being able to manage, uh, but to consider different levels of openness that can be expanded as the child matures and as the child gets better able to use language and not not words. Stephanie, give us just some briefly some ideas of different ways that openness can look other than what I think the general public usually thinks, which is an actual visit. Hmm. Um, and I, I just want to say that the adoptive parents have control over contact. It's their decision once they're the legal parents of the child. Um, it's not a matter of the birth parent um, saying, I require a certain amount of visits um, before this person can adopt my child. They don't 
have a say in foster care, um, in foster care adoptions. In infant adoptions, um, birth parents can, um, they, they have the ability to select the adoptive parents of their child, and a criteria of selecting a particular couple might be that it is an open adoption, and professionals definitely are uh, encouraging open adoption yeah. more. But you're definitely now, right, the adoptive parent's choice. And, and just some different ways that I've seen people do it is through uh, video, um, video chat, right. Skype, mm-hmm. telephone, um, Facebook. Not, I'm not encouraging people to have uh, their children, young children to have Facebook accounts, but uh, parents keeping up with other, uh, the, the, the openness be between the adults in the relationship, not the child. Mm-hmm. And that's another, and that can be done through. Uh, there's a lot of creative ways to do that via the social media, as well as right. you know, old-fashioned ways of just emailing and things like that. And those may be some things that people would want to consider, with the goal that as the child becomes better able to handle the the contact, that it would be important for them, and perhaps. Um, again, the safety being a, a major issue. Exchange um, of gifts or photos might be uh-huh. another way. Or yeah, just having um, birth parents attend significant milestone events. Oh, that's another one, yeah. Um, oh, that, yeah. Concerts or graduations. Uh-huh. Excellent. Okay, good. Now let's move to talking about some um, – uh, you have a section in your book, and, and, and it's actually throughout the book. There are many places where you talk about this, but parenting tips for raising uh, adopted children, and in particular with an eye towards children who have experienced trauma in the form of abuse or neglect. Um, what are some tips for parents? Uh, it, kind of not, not necessarily quick and dirty tips, but, but quick things, that pay, checklists that people can go through and say, okay, yeah, I could do that, I can do that, I could do that, that type of thing. Victor, let's start with you. Yeah, well, one of the things is early intervention is better. So I, I say get therapy early and often. Uh, it, it's better to err on the side of being proactive and getting some professional help rather than waiting and see if it gets better or if it gets worse, you know, be, because we have more success if we can get uh, children and families involved much earlier in, in professional services. So one of the tips is, you know, err on the side of caution and getting somebody to do an assessment and see if this child really would benefit from some professional help. And make the assumption that they probably would need it at the first, at the beginning, and that you will need it. Yeah. You need an, an expert. Just go in assuming it and, and uh, getting it lined up. Um, I'll right. come back to you, Victor. Stephanie, any, uh, that's a great one. We started with uh, therapy early and often. Uh, okay, and uh, I'll let you do the second one, Stephanie. Sure. Um, well, Gloria wrote the ch- um, a chapter or two on um, parenting approaches and what she always emphasizes is positive parenting techniques, um, punishment and, and techniques that you would use with your other children um, who are not older adoptees aren't going to work with an older adoptee. They most likely have a history, the older adoptee has a history of trauma, and um, you're going to need to figure out a whole different set of parenting approaches. Um, it would, and basically would that be more rewarding better behavior, not punishing yeah. bad behavior? Is that That's a good, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, reward the behavior you want to see. That's a great one. Okay, Victor, do you have uh, um, another one that you could give us? Absolutely. Get involved with parent support groups. 
you know, the linchpin of success and adoption is to have other people who understand what you're going through, who've been there, and can give you great advice, including the professionals you should see and the professionals you should avoid. So don't isolate. Get involved with other parents, particularly adopted parents. We're going to come, we're going to circle around to that in the next section here about post-adoption support, but I would certainly, I would agree with that one. Stephanie, do you have one for us? Okay, parenting techniques? Um, yeah, yeah. techniques, yeah. I would say um, what uh, 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 adoptive parents of older children talked about in our interviews a lot is using a sense of humor. In parenting, and we read this in the literature as well, it always comes up. You have to, sometimes when things get so difficult, you just have to have a sense of humor and you have to even motivate your child using humor. You know, things get can get kind of dark and, you know, if the child is um, going through a particular episode, um, remembering or reliving a past trauma, um, not to say that humor is a substitute for getting professional help, but just um, yeah. parents time and again talk about flexibility and sense of humor and creativity. Yeah. I can definitely see that as a mother mm-hmm. of four here. Um, Victor, a uh, suggest- uh, another parenting tip. Well, learn to really be flexible. Uh, I think, you know, humor is great, and I think uh, Stephanie's absolutely right. Children would teach you to be flexible in ways you never imagined. Uh, and, you know, you have to, to – to, one of the things I see parents sometimes do is they try something once and it didn't work, so they do more of the same thing. Well, if it didn't work a little bit, it's not going to work a lot. And so you have to really figure out how can I be flexible about whatever it is that's going on um, and so I think the humor and the flexibility go hand in hand. Successful families are flexible families. Yeah, that's a, that's great because I totally agree. Uh, and and that's a difference between being um, a wishy washy or flip floppy or whatever the you know the the, the correct yes. term for that is. Um, but if it's not working, even though it has worked before with other kids, try something else. You know it. You know yeah. it's not always going yeah. to be. Okay, excellent. You are listening to Creating a Family. Today we're talking about adopting older kids. Creating a Family has the largest adoption and infertility communities on the social networks, and they would be even better if you joined us. Clout, which is the online influence ranker, now ranks us as number two online influencer worldwide in the areas of both adoption as well as infertility. There are three ways to connect with us on the social networks. We primarily play around on Facebook, Pinterest, and Twitter. On Pinterest and Twitter, you can find us at Creating a Family. On Facebook, there are three ways to connect with us. One, we, of course, have our Facebook page, which is Creating a Family. We also, which you can find at creatingafamily.com, I mean, facebook.com slash creatingafamily. We also have a very large and very active and very supportive online support group on Facebook. It's a closed group, uh, and you can find that at facebook.com slash groups slash creatingafamily. Or to be honest, you can just type creating a family in the Facebook search box, and both the page and the group will pop up. You can like the page and join the group. Or you can connect with me personally, dawn.davenport1. 
All right. I want to, um, in the time we have remaining, talk some about post-adoption support. This is a, a real push for uh, for our organization, creating a family, um, and uh, and and. Both almost selfishly, I want to pick the brains of of experts like your both of you on on what is working and and what we as an organization can do better. And then, from our audience standpoint, how can they, as adoptive parents, tap into the support that's available? Because what we find is that if we can get our resources, let me back up a second. Creating a family. Our mission is to create resources uh, for both education and support for adoptive families, both pre- and post-adoption. That's what we do. And all of our resources are offered without charge to the family. So we know we have great resources. The question is, how do we get them in the hands of families before they give up? Because, honestly, once we find that people have thrown in the towel, it's really hard to turn the ship around at that yeah. point. As to make the support there. So, um, so how... I, I, how do how, how can we reach families after they've adopted with our resources? Victor, any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, one of the things is it should be their mantra is there's no shame to ask for help. Um, you're, it has nothing to do with you being a parent. It has everything to do about parenting a child who has special needs because they're older. And so one of your mantras has to be, there's no shame asking for help, uh, and we have to learn how to instill that with, with families as we prepare them for the adoption and as they're going through that transition as children are placed in their home is there's no shame asking for help. It should be expected. It's a normal part of the adoption experience that things are going to come up either from parenting perspective or from a child development perspective that professional help is really essential to helping navigate that transition. So we really want families to, to recognize that post-adoption, you should be always thinking about who can I get to help me with, the, with this child and this issue. Yeah, I like that. Uh, no shame in asking for help. We say that all the time. <laughs> um, all right, let's start. It, it seems to me that, that uh, roughly we can say that there are services and support available nationally and locally. Mm-hmm. Let's start on the national level. Creating a Family is a national organization, so, of course, that's uh, where I'd want to start. <laughs> um, <laughs> but let's think in terms of what type of services are available for a post-adoptive families, and this is we're talking about uh, older child adoption, let's say post-adoption families who have adopted older kids. Um, and I'd like to hear from both of you. Stephanie, thoughts on what type of services are available nationally to families? Um, nationally, um, I, I would suggest that, well, first of all, if parents adopt through a national um, private organization, um, they certainly should find out right off the bat what post-adoption services are available through that organization. And typically um, that would probably be referrals to clinical services, um, um, support groups for parents, support groups even for for kids. There's adoption camps where um, children who have been separated through adoption can spend time with their sibling. so parents, um, people thinking about adoption need to know, do their research first and know what the organization they're adopting through has to offer to them. 
and they have to understand that um, w when they need to go, um, and they most likely will have to get therapeutic services, that they have to go to an, a trauma-informed and adoption-informed um, clinician. Yeah, we're going to circle back to that. I want to spend some time on exactly that point. Um, Victor, do you have any other national? Uh, I'll throw out creating a families. We have uh, uh, a adoption resource guide with uh, probably 30 to 40 specific topics where we have mm -hmm. extensive resources on. We have videos. We have articles. We have blogs. We have expert Q&As. We have these shows. We, we archive these shows. And we have resources specifically to older child adoption, special need adoption, transracial adoption. Um, we cover some specific uh, disabilities, we, uh, raising children with trauma. We have resources on transitioning home, old, um, um, sleep issues, uh, discipline, uh, challenging behaviors, things like that. So anyway, Creating a Family has tons of resources, including a online support group. Um, before we come off of that, Victor, any, uh, any additional resources you can think of from a national level that parents can access um, yeah, in addition for, to for agencies? agencies? Sure. Uh, for, for information, there's a Child Welfare Information Gateway. It's a free service. You can go there. You can search for topics about that. Um, the other place is, is if you're looking for treatment providers or particular techniques, the California Clearinghouse on Child Welfare um, really evaluates different methods of treatment. And um, it's really written for more of the professional, but a lot of adoptive families are quite savvy, and they can go to that uh, website and also look at, is the treatment that I'm looking at for my child an evidence-based treatment, um, and can I be, you know, sure that this is really going to work uh, for my child? So those are the two I would uh suggest people take a look at. Well, that was a great segue into exactly what I want to spend some time on, which is... Um, and this is moving more to the local because obviously, well, for the most part, we think in terms of, of, of therapy as being a, a local resource. Um, and let me just quickly say some other local resources you might want to be looking at are, are respite care, um, uh, uh, local support groups, although quite frankly those are few and far between, and particularly if you don't live in a major metropolitan area. Right. Um, but uh, uh, respite care is a great one, that's a, and as well as different forms of therapy, including emotional therapy as we think about it, not physical therapy, but emotional therapy. Right. Um, and now this is what I want to talk about is finding, uh, is how do parents find an adoption-competent therapist? How, does, how do parents find what type of therapy is going to work? Because if I could pick one recurring refrain that I hear, from families, it's they, you know, they go to just a regular family therapist, and and but they're not certain a family or a child therapist, and they're not certain if that person is is giving them advice that is uh, is going to work for their child. Victor, mm -hmm. you mentioned quite a bit, so let me let me direct this to you, uh, and 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 help families see what's a parent to do when they're trying to find a therapist. Well, the first thing is talk to other adopted parents because I think they, they're the great source of information. They're going to say to you, this is a therapist we went to, and, and we think they were wacko, and this is a therapist we went to that was really helpful when our child was this age experiencing this difficulty. So the first place I go to is talk to other adoptive parents. 
That's why when we said, you know, one of the things that parents can do is get connected with other adoptive parents. They yeah. are a lifeline to you. Um, I think the other thing is don't be afraid to interview therapists about their expertise. You can ask them, did you have adoption coursework? Have you gone to seminars about adoption? How do you integrate adoption issues into your treatment? I mean, we give some really good, I think, guidelines in our book about the kind of questions you should be asking therapists, child psychiatrists. We even say, take the book with you, and so you can blame it on us, <laughs> that you're yeah. asking those questions. Uh, because I think you have a right to, as a mm-hmm. consumer of services to, to ask the kind of questions so that you know you're getting the best service that you can get for the the child who's having a difficulty. Yeah, and that's a, it's a great section in your book. Um, Stephanie, should parents be involved in the child's therapy? I've heard from more than one parent that their child's therapist uh, has the parent should have no place in the therapeutic environment uh, when they're. That's just kind of a general rule. Is that a is that a good rule to follow across the board with uh, adoption? I'm sure there are specific cases where it would be good, but is that a good general rule to begin with with adoption? Um, I would say probably not because um, you're probably going to want to look for a clinician that uses an evidence-based trauma treatment, and your listeners can find more information about trauma and evidence-based trauma treatments um, from nctsn.org, which is the National Child Traumatic Stress um, Network. Dot org and Let's repeat um, that again. NCTSN, which is the initial initials of the National Traumatic National Child Traumatic Stress Network, and they okay. outline um, the most widely used evidence-based trauma treatments. Now, that means an intervention that's been researched and determined to be effective with children experienced experiencing different types of trauma. And most of these interventions do involve the entire family in therapy sessions. There may be some that have a a certain component where the child works with the therapist on their own, but it's important that listeners um, do a bit of research on trauma treatments because a practitioner who is not familiar with trauma and trauma treatments could actually do the child harm in mm-hmm. using um, a treatment that just isn't effective with young children who have ex- who have experienced such traumas. Victor, what should a parent do if they? Well, let me back up and say, how is there a listing of a competent uh, of adoption competent therapist, or is there a listing of evidence based trauma therapist um, by location? Does the nctsn.org website list people who are trained specifically, or is there another listing for adoption-competent therapists that people can go to? Well, at this point, there's not a regular listing, but I know that the federal government has just funded a project that is supposed to be um, working at building a a whole community of adoption-competent trainers. Um, I mean, if you're in Ohio, it's a little bit easier where I live because we we have resource rich, and, and as my university has been training folks in the community for a long period of time. But right. other communities, I think one of the places that you you might want to start is go to the school of social work, uh, find somebody there who knows about adoption, and ask them 
who in our community has adoption competency um because there is no no listing and it's it's just very difficult sometimes for families to find the right person kind of a general rule when i'm working with families is i say well i think you should give me three months that three months we're going to reevaluate what we're doing and if it's not working for you I'm going to help you find somebody who you think might be better able to help you meet your needs. And I think as a rule of thumb, families can can engage in that kind of contract with somebody who they're not quite sure about their adoption competency and say, well, we're going to be involved as a family in my child's treatment. And in three months' time, if it's not really working, I think we'll reevaluate what, what we're doing and where we're going to go with, with what's going on. And if a parent cannot find an adoption-competent therapist or a, uh evidence-based trauma therapist in their area, uh, Victor, what options do they have? Is it possible to do therapy over the phone, at least with you know, for the for the parents? Um, uh, do parents have any option at that point? Well, I, I think those options are actually growing. It's a really interesting time in treatment because now you see some providers who actually do it through Skype. Uh, yep. who work with you at different locations or Google Connect or other other vehicles. So I think the options, particularly for families who live in more remote areas who aren't in an urban area, where there's usually a, a resource-rich environment for finding providers, this will, I think, is going to open up many doors. The thing is you, you want to make sure that you're involved with somebody who's licensed and credible uh, and in good standing in their state and talk to other parents. I mean, I think that's really the key here is they will provide you good advice about who's a good practitioner to work with. I think you're, yeah, I think you're exactly right. And, there, and, and hence, the and even national support groups, we see all the time people posting on ours saying, I live in Wyoming. Can anybody recommend somebody, you know, near, right. you know, near my city or whatever? Um, and that's just a, um, a really... Uh, a, a useful tool as well. Well, Stephanie, I'm going to give you the last word. I'd like to end on a positive note. What have you seen so far in, in resiliency and post-trauma growth in, in, in kiddos who have been adopted at an older age? Well, just interviewing the families for the book, I, I am just um, so amazed and so encouraged by their stories. Um, they, most of them have had some really tough times, but most of them have overcome, um, the worst of the challenges and their children are thriving. Um, I would say that people can't go into older child adoption uneducated, but they should not dismiss it either. Educate yourself and, um... You know, it it can be the best experience and decision that a family makes. Absolutely. Thank you both so much for being uh, on the Creating a Family show today. I think we have provided some really useful information. Let me stop for a moment and uh, remind you that it is through the generous support of our gold sponsors that we are able to bring you both this show as well as 
all the resources on older child adoption, special needs adoption, transitioning home, post-parent, uh, uh, post-adoption depression in parents, et cetera, et cetera. These resources are supported and are brought to you by our gold sponsors, who include Children's Connection, Inc. They're an adoption agency with offices throughout Texas, providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation adoption, and home studies and post-adoption support to families throughout the United States. We have the Independent Adoption Center, whose mission is to provide open adoption placement and counseling to birth and adoptive families. They work in families in all 50 states and are fully licensed in California, New York, Florida, Texas, Georgia, Indiana, North Carolina, and Connecticut. And we have Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They have been providing adoption services for for more than 50 years with offices in California, Colorado, South Carolina, and Kentucky. They provide international adoption, domestic adoption, foster care adoption, and embryo adoption services. If you have enjoyed this show, do us a favor and hop on over to iTunes and give us a rating. Uh, We are ranked as number one there by far, and we'd like to keep that ranking, and it really matters. Um, uh, Your comments, it's a star rating system, or you can actually leave a comment, either one. It's quick, it's easy, and we would really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Stephanie Bosco Ruggiero. Darn, I messed up the pronunciation on that. <laughs> Ruggiero. Did I get it right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> close and, enough, Don. It's a tough close one. enough. And and Victor Groza for being our guest today on Creating a Family. If you want to participate in a discussion on the, one of the topics of this show, you can check out my blog tomorrow at creatingafamily.org/blog. And let's keep this uh, the ideas coming and the discussion going because this is such an important topic. Um, and let me encourage everyone to buy this book, Adopting Older Children: A Practical Guide to Adopting and Parenting Children Over the Age of Four. It is a great read. It is a hopeful read. Uh, and I, uh, if this is something you're considering, or if you're actually parenting a child uh, that is an, that adopted at an older age, you just can't do better than 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 buying this book. They also have a website, adoptingolderchildren.com. You can uh, get the book, of course, on Amazon or at Indi- Esker Independent uh, Seller. It's published by New Horizon Press, and they'll buy it. Uh, or you can buy it through their website, Adopting olderchildren.com. Thank you so much for joining us today, and I will see you next week.